Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse the evolving situation on the ground in Kherson as Russia braces for a Ukrainian attack on the occupied city. We discuss a number of important diplomatic updates from around the world, and we speak to Ukrainian businesswoman Olga Shapovalova about how businesses have coped, changed and adapted to the ongoing Russian invasion. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Ukraine can win, Ukraine must win, and Ukraine will win. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 19th of October, day 238, and today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Dernley, our foreign reporter, Verity Bowman, and our guest, Olga Shapovalova, head of partnerships and B2B at the Ukrainian educational tech startup, Headway. I started by asking Verity for the latest from Herzog. Yes, of course. So Russian officials have said that the battle for the occupied city is in the very near future. I've been speaking to people on the ground all morning, and I'll get to that in a bit, but just to give a, ba- a bit of background first. So General Survey Sorovakin, commander of the Russian forces in Ukraine, has said in an interview to Russian TV that the situation in Kherson is tense and difficult. And what we're hearing is that the Russian army is set to help civilians leave areas across the region. The general said... Further plans and action in relation to the city will depend on the tactical military situation as it develops. And what this has done is given rise to a bit of speculation that Russia may retreat. So the Russian-installed head of the Kherson region said last night that civilians are being evacuated and that the Battle of Kherson is about to begin. On the ground, what we know is that Russian forces have driven have been driven back by 20 miles in the past few weeks and they've been pinned again the right or western side of the Dnieper River and this river runs alongside the city. There have been major there haven't really been any major shifts on the southern front, but I do think that Russia will struggle to hold on for much longer. The Kerch Bridge, which is key, has been badly damaged, and this means that Russia can't get supplies to the front line. Ukrainian forces have also reached the Dnieper River to the east of the southern front. So it's looking like very good news for for the Ukrainian army in the south and bad news for the Russians. Verity, you mentioned you you spent all morning talking to locals in in Kherson. What are they telling you? So yeah, I've been speaking to them all morning, interviewing them, people from across the region. So what we've seen and what I've seen examples of are text messages warning these people to leave as soon as possible. We think that a lot of these have been sent by um, Russian authorities because they're saying, look, Ukraine's going to come in and they're going to be bombing areas and you need to get out now as quickly as you can. 
So when I was sent by was a local called Karina and she said that she's received three of these messages in just one day. But she's even saying now that she's not going to leave because she doesn't want to leave her parents or grandparents behind. And she heartbreakingly said that she will hide in a basement and she will be praying to survive the entire time that she is down there. I also spoke to a woman named Irina who said that Russian authorities knocked on her door three times in the last few days and she's finally agreed to travel to Crimea with her eight-year-old daughter. She said that fighting is edging close to her home day by day and it's left her in this really impossible position of putting her daughter's safety above her desire to stay home. Even though she's managed to make it eight months, she's done everything she can to stay with her family, but she says she's just been pushed to the limit. And she told me that she's terrified, but this is the only option. She doesn't know the exact time of her departure, but has been told it will be within days. And she went on to say then that she was just too scared to speak further, as her phone is likely to be checked, you know, as we've seen before, at all of these checkpoints that she will have to cross to get to Crimea. And another person I spoke to was Victoria, who's just 21 years old, and she said the last few days have kind of felt like a bit of a quiet before the storm. There's not been too much going on, but she's seen a lot of vehicles passing by her house, and she's also seen soldiers, Russian soldiers, setting up in empty houses near her home. And she's heard one of these say that they're not going to surrender. Earlier today, she had flyers posted in her apartment building, and these were by pro-Ukrainians, and they were saying that residents needed to stay strong and, you know, keep fighting. So, yeah, Russia right now is saying that they're committed to keeping her some, but what we will see coming next is unclear. I think something to also note is that Russia are saying that they're doing this large-scale evacuation of the area, and that this could see 50,000 to 60,000 people move from Russia. But what's actually happening on the ground and how many of these people are leaving is really unclear. Well, thank you very much, uh, Verity, for keeping us up to date. Just, but is, is there anything else to mention about the imminent Hassan offensive before I go to uh, Francis for some reaction to that? I think the last sort of thing to say is that in terms of this evacuation, a Ukrainian official has accused Russia of organising a propaganda show. Um, And they're saying that, you know, they're trying to scare residents with what he described as fake newsletters about Ukrainian shelling and that they're really trying to stir up a lot of fear about what Ukraine is going to do next. Well, thank you very much, Verity. Francis, you've been listening to that. Um, Can I just come to you just briefly, because I know we've got a lot to get through, uh, for your reaction to to these rather astonishing uh, developments in Kherson and the imminent, what we believe is the imminent uh, Ukrainian assault uh, for the liberation of the city? Yes, yeah, so I'd first just like to pick up on what Verity was saying there, which is I think that something that is very striking looking at the commentary on this this morning is the degree to which this is actually a being described as a as another example of a of a war crime when you're de- deporting civilians on this scale. Um, people are saying that you know, rather than seeing this as an evacuation, this is actually something far more um, insidious than that. Um, but yes, um, in terms of the reaction to not only what's happening in Herzon, but also the reaction yesterday to the strikes um, that we were describing in detail. There's been some very noticeable interventions this morning
morning, um, which I will now um, just describe. So um, first thing I just to jump into is Zelensky has said that there's now no space for negotiations with Putin's regime as a consequence of these attacks. Now, one could argue that there hasn't been much space for negotiations for, for a very long time, given that both sides essentially are, are going for broke as things stand. And so as a consequence, I, that room for negotiation dissipated some time ago. But um, in terms of other interventions, as I say, there's been an interesting one from the U- European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, who's called Russia's attacks on civilian infrastructure war crimes. Um, she tweeted, Russia's attacks against civilian infrastructure, especially electricity, are war crimes. Cutting off men, women, children of water, electricity and heating with winter coming. These are acts of pure terror. And we have to call it out as such. The Estonian defence minister has also um, uh, made some interesting remarks as a consequence of what's occurred, saying that the Iranian kamikaze drones that we discussed at length yesterday are evidence of how drained the Russian stockpile of weapons are generally, that this is actually a bit of, of, of desperation rather than it being something, sort of an escalation of, of, of military material. Interesting, other remarks from the Defence Minister of Estonia saying that they predict a long war and are urging the West to stand with the Ukrainians until they achieve victory for the free world. Now, of course, that comes on the back of our in-depth conversation at the end of last week, which is about this question of permanency on the on the front line as winter arrives. And indeed, it does seem to be that there's a consensus forming within the European Union, at least, that believes that as winter is arriving, that we need to start preparing European populations and 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 everything else for for seeing this this war now as something that is going to have a very long long period left to run in. Well, thank you very much uh, for that, Francis. Moving away from Europe, there are some very important d- diplomatic updates uh, from the U.S. The British Defence Minister Ben Wallace was in Washington for an urgent meeting with his U.S. counterparts um, uh, yesterday on Tuesday. Francis, can you tell us what they were talking about and why it's important? Certainly. Well, this is a really interesting story that that broke whilst the podcast was taking place yesterday. And we didn't cover it then because we just didn't really feel like we knew enough details to, to dive into it. But we do now. So as you say, British Defence Secretary Ben Wallace flew to Washington for an urgent meeting with his US counterpart to discuss Russia's use of drones to attack Kiev. That's the official line that we've heard coming out of the meeting. Now, the interesting thing is that there's been not a lot more speculation as to what was being discussed and amongst that speculation is a piece in the Sun newspaper here in Britain this morning which is claiming that uh, it was actually or one of the topics that was being discussed is an intelligence possibility that Russia may try and use some kind of nuclear weapon on the in the Black Sea um, to show you know that they are not bluffing um, so that's a story, as I say, that has not been independently verified. Um, but that is what the Sun newspaper are reporting, that that may explain some of the hastiness of this um, uh, meeting that taking place. Ben Wallace was due to address the Defence Select Committee, which is an important committee in the House of Commons uh, yesterday, but was not able to do so because of him doing this meeting. And indeed, there were some quite interesting remarks that have been released 
today by the Foreign Secretary James Cleverly, who told uh, Sky News about the urgency. He said, quote, we would inevitably discuss a full range of stuff, but ultimately these conversations are a normal and regular part of what is frankly a very abnormal and perverse situation. Of course there's urgency because civilians are being targeted in a new way and so we have to respond to that. And our response has got to be done at pace and there are conversations which, frankly, you don't want to have over the telephone. Now you can see why from remarks like that there's so much speculation about what the true nature of those conversations taking place were. Absolutely. Thank you, Francis. There's still quite a few diplomatic updates to talk about. So let's stay in the US. We've talked quite a few times on the podcast in the past about how US policy of support for Ukraine might change um, looking forward to the midterms, which are, which are coming up in November in the US. Um, we're having a little bit of a sense of what the Republicans might do if they win back seats. Uh, Francis, can you tell us about this? Yes, well, we spoke at length last week about this, the Putin strategy as we enter winter. Now, of course, part of that strategy is to continue the attritional war in Ukraine, trying to hold up the defensive lines that he's uh, secured in those annexed territories, although, of course, the Ukrainians have something to say about that. So he's trying to do that. He's trying to fight on the energy front. And he's also trying to keep up the diplomatic pressure and, and, and make it clear that Russia isn't going anywhere, despite the numerous defeats that he's suffered in recent months. Now, as I said then, part of that strategy is being aware that as things become more difficult in America, but also in Europe, um, as a consequence of the energy crisis, his expectation is that he will be able to put increasing pressure on those governments and eventually that those governments way will be put out of office via democratic means. And the ones who succeed them will be just by the very nature of being the opposition of the current governments in in, in Europe and in America uh, will probably be more sympathetic to the idea of of some kind of peace plan in Ukraine because they won't want to start their new administrations with uh, with a war ongoing. You know, it, it handicaps a lot of a lot of things, and so that's the, what his expectation is. And as you say, a very interesting and and no doubt concerning uh, intervention yesterday by Kevin McCarthy, who is some believe the party's likely leader of the Republican. Republicans um, in, 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 in the future, um, saying that the US won't offer a, quote, blank check, close quote, to Ukraine if the Republicans win control of the House of Representatives. So I should stress that he's the expected leader of the, um, of, of the Republicans in the House of Representatives. Uh, he suggested that Americans want Congress to focus on issues closer to home ahead of next month's midterm elections. So this is all being framed around the, the midterms and, of course, some expecting that the Republicans will, will will potentially take back both houses. By no means guaranteed, of course. A lot of things have changed in the United States in recent months, but um, nonetheless, a very interesting intervention. And just because I was contextualising this in a broader sense, I just wanted to touch on another intervention, which is by um, Silvio Berlusconi, who, of course, is um, um, his party is now one of the three parties that will form the next government in Italy. Uh, he won't be the uh, the president, but he will, you know, nonetheless be a significant player. He has also um, spoken, or, or I should say, not spoken. It's been leaked that he has said that he has rekindled his friendship with Vladimir Putin to become a uh, and, and as a consequence of receiving twenty bottles of vodka and a very sweet birthday card from the Russian from the Russian president. And as I say, this has been leaked, so uh, there's lots of scrambling around as the government 
government are trying to deny this or the government that's soon to be formed in Italy are trying to, to deny the scale of this. But as I say, you can see that why Putin from his... Uh, viewpoint in the Kremlin, knowing that he is uh, doesn't need to worry about democratic process. He's looking at the West and thinking, well, things are going to get much, much tougher for them in the coming months. And some of these figures who are now uh, weren't in play before are suddenly going to become in play and they are more sympathetic to some kind of peace deal. So he is trying to, I think, as I say, create increasing pressure on the West at this moment, knowing that he believes And I say it's by no means certain, but he believes that this will play out more favourably to him in the long term. Thank you, Francis. Just going back to your point about the uh, US, one thing, obviously, we know we have lots of listeners from the US. So it would be very interesting to hear from you, just your thoughts on the um, upcoming midterms. And just if you know, if you tell us a little bit about your vote and potentially how different uh, parties, well, the the stance of the Republican parties, do you think that's putting people off voting for them? Or do you think it's something that might gain them votes? I think we'd be very interested to hear a little bit more from from our American listeners on that. Um, There's just one more very important update, I think, from Europe before we go to our our guest, Olga, which is um, some rather astonishing news from Germany that the head of Germany's National Cybersecurity Agency has been sacked over allegations he kept uh, far too close ties to Russia. I mean, this is an extraordinary story, Francis. Um, Would you like to talk us through it? It is an extraordinary story, David, and one that we will no doubt go into more detail into in due course. Indeed, I'd like to bring back Tom, Dr. Thomas Clausen, who's appeared to talk about these German affairs and specifically this this issue of, of security and relationships with Russia in the past. So hopefully we'll be able to do that towards the end of this week or next week. But as you say, yes, uh, the head of, of, of Germany's National Cybersecurity Agency, very, very senior figure in intelligence circles, has been sacked over these allegations of excessively close ties. Um, the man is called Arne Schoenbaum um, and he's the head of the BSI agency. And the reports are, and I'll quote directly, that he's damaged the necessary confidence of the public in the neutrality and impartiality of the ministry. Now, uh, there's a long, complicated story uh, about how this is unraveled and how this has been essentially exposed. There was an investigation um, by a a programme in Germany that then uh, led to um, more investigations into previous meetings um, that this figure had taken part in and uh, some of them very, very embarrassing from the German government. So um, German media have reported that one of the members of the Cybersecurity Council in Germany um, had one of the companies had a subsidiary of a Russian cybersecurity firm that was founded by a former KGB agent. So you can imagine how this association has, 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 as I say, caused considerable consternation and concern. The German government said that it was investigating the reports comprehensively. And obviously, as a result of those investigations, it's led to this action taken yesterday. Um, and uh, yes, the... Uh, there's been a co- co- in 2019 a cooperation agreement with uh, a Russian counterpart was also signed, which is leading to quite a lot of concern. Um, so, as I say, there's a lot into this story to unpack, and I'm sure we will seek to do so um, in, in due course. But of course, the broader implications of this is there has been concern, as I've talked about in the past, of of the extent to which Germany have 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 
been um, you know not not necessarily the most reliable partner um, in terms of, of, of the war prior to its beginnings but also um, since then I should say in saying that that Germany have actually provided the third most amount of, of military material since the war began behind America and and, and Britain so they are they are not by any means um, insignificant and I don't wish to, to be making that argument but as I say that as we've talked about in detail in the past there have been ongoing question marks about um, Germany and foreign policy decisions, particularly under Angela Merkel, um, the former, of course, Chancellor of Germany, Gerhard Schroeder, going to Putin and meeting with him and talking about the need for peace and all of these things. It's led to a lot of question marks over German foreign policy at this critical juncture. And I think there are many, many people who sort of feel that really Germany had this golden opportunity really to be a moral leader in in, in Europe at this critical, critical moment and that he has not really stood... Um, stood up to that platform uh, and and there are many people as I say but not least here in, in London I think who have who've um, seen that as a terrible shame um, but as I say the, the very nature and swift response from the German government to to this accusation now speaks to I think the urgency in which they see this and the concern that they have of this being a doing long-term reputational damage to Germany so um, the fact that they are responding so swiftly I think is itself telling well, thank you very much for that, Francis. And thank you for taking us uh, through all of those updates. Um, and thank you, Verity, for giving us all the news from Hassan on, on the ground in Ukraine. Over the past two weeks, we've seen a number of horrific and brutal and cruel strikes on the Ukrainian capital and cities across the country. And one of the things that's really stood out, I think, to foreign observers throughout the entire war is to the, the great extent to which Ukrainians themselves are trying to go about their, their daily lives. Um, it's something that really struck me when I was in Kiev in, in July to see even when the air raid siren is going off, people are still trying to get on with their day. They're still trying to go to work, do their jobs. So with that in mind, we wanted to explore a bit and understand how Ukrainian businesses are functioning during this conflict. So it's a great honour to have with us Olga Shapovalova, a Ukrainian businesswoman. So Olga, thank you so much uh, for coming in. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from in, U in Ukraine and what's been your experience so far in the, in the invasion? Hi, David. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for the invitation. So it's a great pleasure to be here and thanks for the opportunity to speak about Ukraine, about our businesses in your great podcast. Uh, my name is Olga and first of all, I'm proudly Ukrainian. I was born in Ukraine, in Kiev and continue to live here in Ukraine. Uh, my job is uh, head of partnerships and B2B in Headway. Headway is a global tech startup uh, with Ukrainian roots that helps people grow and find an easy way by making enjoyable products for the smartphone age. For now, we have uh, four different offices. So it's in uh, Kiev, Warsaw, London, and uh, Nicosia. But yes, like mostly I work from the Kiev office. About the experience, so starting from 24th of February, all Ukrainians found themselves in a difficult and terrible situation, Russian invasion of our country. And of course, I will not hide that it's a really complicated and difficult time for the whole nation. Um, I started my experience from the 24th when I uh, had moved uh, the whole team. Like I think there was uh, there were 90 people uh, in the team, and now it's like more than 
160, uh, we moved to the west of Ukraine. Like in the beginning, uh, it was the most safe place. Uh, so we took all of our employees, their parents, uh, families, like with children, with pets, yeah, and evacuated them to the west. Uh, the hardest part is that you're so like nervous, yeah, every time because you uh, have uh, a job that needs to be done. You have 90 people that needs to be moved. Uh, you have your own family that needs to take be, uh, to take the care of, and uh, all this process should be released at the same time. And uh, like at the same time, we call it just simply management. Yeah, <laughs> but in war time, you just do a lot of stuff. You sleep like three, four hours and then again start fighting how you actually can do it like by yourself. It shows how strong Ukrainians can be and it's, we're so proud of our people. Uh, when your stress moves to anger feelings and you understand that you need to fight, uh, you need to fight, you need to work and donate to the uh, Ukrainian army. But nevertheless, like to come back to evocation, the most challenging thing was considering every personal story and resolving individual issues. Some of our teammates have small children, some have elderly grandparents, and uh, some have several animals that need special attention. Uh, we found a place where we could stay with our pets and uh, also had a large bomb shelter where we could hide in case of air raid alarms. When most of our team was safe in west of Ukraine, I started relocating women and children uh, with elderly relatives abroad. And actually, we quickly found an office in Warsaw. People in Poland so understandable. They uh, like understood all of our situation and fully supported us. So they gave us like discount, full support and help organize everything as soon as possible. Uh, yeah, but um, just one case I had that my family didn't want to live. Yes, they stayed in Ukraine. And, uh, you know, like I said, my alarm clock to go off like every two hours each night to check the news. And then five, uh, I remember at 7 a.m., I just wrote to my parents and ensure like is everything is all right. Uh, if they didn't dance for me, I just even sometimes had a panic attack. And like you understand that you need just to get up and go and uh, again, again, work and do all the stuff that you need. After three weeks uh, of a full-scale war, uh, my mother and sister agreed to go to Poland, thanks God, yeah, and then while other relatives sales in Kiev. Uh, but Meantime, when everyone was in the safety place, uh, I launched the B2B department at Headway. So as I took over the evocation process, I had to put all of this uh, like job tasks aside. And uh, it was like full-time job. Uh, I was doing like day and night, taking all the time and energy. But still, we need to grow the business. Well, thank you so much. Olga, for giving us that, that intro there. So you, you mentioned how you're not just working on your new startup every day, but you're also organizing evacuations. You're trying to get people out of um, the danger zone in the east of Ukraine to the west. We, we've known that the, there have been strikes across Kyiv for the past two weeks. We saw an awful story that one of your colleagues was actually affected by that. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened and, and, and the, the outcome of that? Sure, like, just firstly, what I can say that I never wish anyone to be involved in this personally or with your loved ones, your family or colleagues. Unfortunately, uh, one of my teammates, uh, Ilya, he came under rocket fire on the 10th of October in Kiev city center. And really, it's like a miracle that he stays alive. 
when he told me that he was there and injured, I couldn't even express like what I felt in those minutes. It's like you don't want to believe in that. Uh, you think that no, no, it's impossible because like what is the probability that out of several million people who are now staying in Kiev, it's like your friend, your relative, yeah, who will be at the scene of the accident. Like till the end of the day, you believe that this will not happen uh, to you, yes, and your like uh, closer people. But when it's happened, you understand the real word of war. He came to one hospital, then another one. We were on the phone like the whole time. I was trying to support him, but you know, like you can't find appropriate words, yeah, because you can say a lot, but only doctor can actually yeah help you physically. Uh, only after he made the voice message, describe how it was, uh, describe everything that he's like. All right, if I can say actually or mention this word, all right, yeah, in this situation, yeah, I just uh, understand that all the feeling that I have, like, uh, like it's awful and horrible stuff, and like say thanks a million times to God that He's alive, and He was like, you know, listening like okay in this message, yeah, I know and I knew it before, like that He's strong guy, yeah, but even can't imagine how uh, how much. Uh, then the next day he did a post on social media. And I saw photos. Like, again, a lot of stress because when you hear something, yeah, it's just the one stuff. But when you see it, yeah, it's like, it's horrible, really. Uh, he was in the car that shocked wave from the rocket broke. Uh, rocket broke the windshield into small fragments and some of them popped to, uh, to the face. Like, thanks God, now uh, he's recovering. Of course, need time. Uh, but I think, like, this experience, uh, the whole team will remember, I think, for the whole life. So in the past six months, how do you and your team sort of keep your spirits up? I mean, if you're, if you're moving constantly, if you're working from bomb shelters, um, how, how do you keep people motivated and, and, um, and I mean, with a smile on their face? Is it possible to do that? Actually, I think the most important thing is support. It's uh, about how managers work with the team, how uh, internal communication we build, yes, our human resource process. Um, all the employees that you have, they need to be sure that the company will do their best to protect them. Uh, we made a lot of mentor sessions with psychologists. Uh, we do meetings at a name like "How are you?" Ask your ask, uh, t- tell to the team and ask your neighbor. Uh, so yes, yeah, so support is the most important thing, and uh, it's number one that you need to provide to your team. Of course, like you need to understand that you need to have your plans. Of course, we can't maybe move some long term now, yeah, but short term you should have some personal goals, and uh, that's why we have strategic sessions. We have some tactical approach just to make sure that all people understand what is they doing, yeah, how they build in their own life, their career uh, stuff at work. Yeah, um, especially me, I do a lot of sport activities, you know, like five times per week and uh, actually your stress uh, just decreasing. Yeah, we need to understand that we, are, uh, we live with a new reality. We don't skip even our traditions, like for now. Uh, for instance, yesterday we had a book club. And uh, like in online, offline format, yes, it's tradition. They, you need the team a lot. And we just understand that we have this supporting spirit. Yeah, and then we can fight for the victory. Do you think that in your team and potentially other people in, in Ukraine have normalized these conditions now after six months of the invasion and, and a war that doesn't look like it's 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 coming to an end anytime soon? Actually, I don't think they should do. Yes, they should normalize these conditions because 
uh, truly speaking, there is no normal conditions for the war. And it's not okay that people are sitting at least like three, four times in bomb shelters and trying to work and trying to survive and live. So no, Ukraine is as any nation should live with normal life in the country where they used to live, how they want to live, because it's like their right to life, yeah, and uh, no one should take it away from them. A person get uh, actually can get used to everything, yes, but why? I can't find the answer, and I actually don't want even to. Uh, many companies in Ukraine are doing their best to continue doing business, to support the employees. Yeah, but uh, truly speaking, I will never accept our new world reality as normal. Yeah, that's why, like, we just need to fight, just need to bring the victory. Yeah, but just if I can say that we normalize the conditions, no, no, we even don't want to. Thanks so much for that, Olga. Just one more question from me, really, um, just to get into the weeds of the business a little bit. I mean, you've described in, in, in the, the evacuation to the West how, how your colleagues have come under fire and have been injured. Just in terms of doing business day to day, how have the basic sort of practices of hiring, start people starting new roles, um, working with teams, how has that changed for you and your operation o- over the past six months? Actually, yeah, the great question because uh, we have a lot of changes. Yeah, uh, first of all, starting from for the uh, launching the new department. Yeah, launching the B two B, especially even in normal life, B two B is a long term stuff. So you need to make the long term relationship with the clients. And I think uh, during the war, it's like two times harder. If we're talking about clients, uh, I think our geography pie is changed because actually we should have some from Ukraine, but of course they now spent money uh, not for the, some even business needs like more yeah they spend the money for uh, their people yes just to evacuate them uh, etc yeah but we uh, give the free access for Ukrainians uh, clients uh, that we have now uh, they're coming from UK US yeah and uh, of course, they react to the situation. Yeah, they so supportive. They say like uh, they support us and support Ukraine, but no concessions that you are from Ukraine. So you need to make business, yeah, because business is business. Yeah, that's why, like, if you have a great product, of course, you need to uh, understand that um, you make a business. You have a great product, so great, you can make the uh, relationship. If we are talking about hiring, I think. It's a little bit different uh, because, like, I used to work in an office and I really like to work in an office. But now we have um, a remote process, more longer interview. And sometimes you don't understand, like, the answer that uh, people give you. Is it about conditions of the stress or uh, they didn't match to the team? Yeah, so it's so complicated to understand if the person is really fit to the team. Uh, we just make the last quantity of hiring process stages. Yeah, and like understand that all the process that we do, they will go in for remote. And of course, if you launch the new um, department, you understand that you need to change a lot of stuff really quickly. Strategy, tactic plans, yeah, so today we go there and another day there. And when you sit in in one table, yeah, you understand that you can uh, really quickly um, change it, yeah. But if you're remote or you sit in in different time zones, different countries, of course, like it's uh, need a lot of time 
just to read the message, to make a call, uh, yeah, and etc. But still, like uh, onboarding, even onboarding remote process, uh, now is uh, working really good. So we're working a lot with our teams. Uh, one week planning, uh, more quickly changing the strategy. Uh, we have three times weekly team meeting, quarter episodes with the whole team, just to make sure that everyone understood the goals that we have and to actually do their best yeah, to achieve these goals. Thanks for your insights, Olga. Really, really interesting to hear your your experience of this. So just on on the question of, of business in, in Ukraine, I mean, I'm thinking back to the, some of the remarks by Zelensky several months ago when he was talking about his economic vision for Ukraine at the end of the war. And it would be, in a sense, to make Ukraine into a sort of Western investment hub and of innovative technologies and startups. Do you really get that sense amongst young people, particularly in, in Kyiv and, and other major cities in Ukraine, that this is a vision that they can buy into? And if so, how does that compare with perhaps how the old Ukrainian economy used to operate and businesses? I think the changes um, will go for young entrepreneurs because uh, actually now they understand um, like the short-term goals that they have and uh, they will... Um, particularly to try to do their best to move the business forward very quickly. Um, just to make sure, uh, first of all, that the business will work, uh, the first thing, and the second one, that they can uh, bring um, really great stuff for Ukrainian economy. Yeah, that's why I think like uh, lots of business uh, will start doing, uh, will start doing better and will uh, actually move everything uh, really quickly. To compare for the past, um, I think like we, we have even now, yeah, a lot of great Ukrainian tech projects like uh, Headway, uh, Grammarly, PetCube, uh, but... Um, uh, but still, I think like we will have more of them, yeah, because all the people will try to do faster everything to make the Ukrainian economy more stronger than it was before. Well, thank you so much, Olga, for that. And it's been absolutely fascinating hearing your experience and hearing your success while dealing with everything that's that's going on in, in Ukraine. So thank you so much for talking to us. Francis, um, can I just come to you very quickly for a final thought for our listeners? Sure. Thanks, David. Um, I, I just wanted to draw attention to the remarks of um, Garry Kasparov, of course, the famous chess world champion, very, very prominent critic of Putin and very vocal on Twitter. Now, I know we keep coming back to Twitter recently, and I always feel slightly uncomfortable doing so because I'm very aware that it's you know, a, a very small bubble of people who actually interact daily on, on Twitter. And I think sometimes its its influence can be quite pernicious. But I think it's absolutely essential that we do cover it in the context of this war, because it is such a vital source of information for politicians, as well as in many ways being a theatre of the war itself, whether it be the propaganda that Russia is putting out, the kind of reportage that we see and how influential that can be on, on, on getting live feeds and what's going on. So I think it is important to talk about Twitter, although I'm sensitive, as I say, to to it perhaps sometimes being overplayed. But um, I just wanted to draw attention to the remarks of of, of, of Mr. Kasparov because he's offered a, a thread which has has gained a lot of traction and is leading to a lot of conversation, which I think is is food for thought. So I'm going to read it out. Um, it's, it's it's a bit long, but I will I will I will read it out and then just sort of pick out a few points that I think are interesting from it. So this is what he said. 
Quote, Obama has admitted his failure in Iran, but what of Crimea? What of Syria? Worse, why make the same mistakes again now? He's more subtle, of course, but his comments about limits are in the same vein of appeasement as Elon Musk's. Putin is bragging about attacks on Ukrainian civilians and infrastructure, acts of terror. Resolve and deterrence are required, not preemptive self-deterrence that convinces Putin he can get away with even the unimaginable. Saying Ukraine's defence cannot be allowed to expand into a war with NATO is absurd when Putin already launched that war long ago. Ignoring it in 2014 didn't make it go away. There's no guarantee of security, but appeasement guarantees escalation. Then he goes on to talk about how Putin has shown over and over again that he he only responds to strength. The West has been weak. Then talking about the, the role of Iran. And then he concludes by saying... The West has overwhelming advantages, but, as in 2014, is rushing to take things off the table to reassure terrorist dictatorships they are free to escalate when they like. They are afraid of victory and so guarantee more conflict, more deaths. Well, you can imagine why this has has caused such a... uh, um, discussion debate uh, amongst senior politicians on on Twitter and in the uh, uh, self-dubbed Twitterati. Um, I think the first thing to pick out here is his remarks about Obama and the red lines on on Syria and the sort of weakness on Syria and and on Crimea, as it's often um, perceived as. I think it's, and, and his comparison with Elon Musk particularly, and I think actually that part of the reason this has gained so much traction is that he has a point, you know, that, that ultimately the West said it had certain red lines about the chemical use of chemical weapons in Syria. Uh, those proved not to be red lines and, uh, and, and therefore it sent a message to regimes around the world that the West was not as robust on these red lines as, as had previously appeared. On Crimea, of course, again, this kind of rhetoric that um, the previous presidential administrations was putting out was much more, I think, appeasing in tone than we see now. And I think it's interesting that the comparison with Elon Musk there, because if that's true, that they are do have a similar sort of stance or did have a similar stance, I think it's more complicated than that. But if it's true that generally speaking, it does show how far things have shifted since the war in Ukraine began, because I think it's almost inconceivable now that uh, a president would try and justify um, or, or would, would oh, let me rephrase that, would have perhaps... Um, um, the same stance on Crimea now that than they had back in in 2014. So I think that's an interesting comment to comment on. But also this broader point about um, the West constantly appeasing uh, the, uh, the, the terrorist states, whether that be Russia or, or Iran, and taking things off the table rather than being more robust. And I think that gets to the central problem of the moment, really. And I think, as I say, that's really why this is, has, has, has taken off and is stirring such comment, is that it's this question that we've talked about in the podcast in the past about the extent to which the West is being reactive rather than proactive and, and questions about what more it can be doing to make it clear where the red lines are. Because the danger is, of course, is that if it does not make those st- is clear, then many uh, dictatorships around the world will see those as green lights, not amber lights, not red lights, but green lights of, 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 of that more is permissible because those lines are not laid down. Now, of course, Hamish de, de Breton Gordon, who appears on this podcast very regularly, has is, has articulated very eloquently what, what he thinks those red lines should be, which is around um, the use of chemical weapons in Syria, which he's very worried, sorry, in Ukraine, which he's worried about because the new commander, of course, in Ukraine is 
he's a former commander in Syria and the fears that the chemical warfare is now very much a possibility. Of course, we've already seen the drones being used this week, which you could argue is an escalation of the kind of barbarism of this war triggered by this new commander. So he's talked about that. He's talked about, of course, the nuclear threats and, and the danger of, of, of us not having a strong stance on that. So there's all these sorts of conversations that are very, very relevant to this essential question. And I think that we should see that event that I talked about um, earlier on with Ben Wallace going to Washington. In that context, there are, I think, very, very big concerns at the moment. The West is not being clear on on uh, on where its red lines are. And not only that, that um, it's being perhaps, as I say, too reactive as opposed to preactive, uh, proactive. And, and I think that, as I say, as we're entering winter, things are, are going to slow down potentially. And as a consequence of that, it's very, very important now that the West has a long-term strategy for approaching this. And as I say, there just doesn't seem to be that, that clear voice cutting through the dark that is saying, here is what our stance is. Normally, one would look to America for that, for that clarity. We haven't seen it. And so I think this will be, as I say, an ongoing story in the weeks and months ahead. Well, thank you very much, Francis, Olga and Verity, for all of your time today. Olga, can I come to you just for your your final thoughts? Yeah, thank you so much once again for the invitation. It's really great pleasure to be here. Yeah, um, just... Ukrainian is so great and strong nation. Yeah, uh, we do everything that we can. We fight everyone on each condition that they can. Yeah, uh, just to bring this victory. So glory to Ukraine, glory to heroes. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter to make sure you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Louisa Wells and on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Just before you go, listeners, I wanted to tell you about another podcast you might like from our foreign desk here at The Telegraph. It's called... How to Become a Dictator, by our brilliant China correspondent, Sophia Yan, who you will have heard on Ukraine The Latest quite a few times. Here's a sneak peek. Right now, the whole world is watching China. It's the 20th Party Congress, a twice-in-a-decade political set-piece that reveals the outcome of China's very secretive leadership selection. And there is, of course, only one man in the running. Xi Jinping. This is seismic. After the death of Chairman Mao Zedong, there has been a two-term limit on Chinese leaders. No more. Xi is on the cusp of effectively becoming ruler for life. Understanding him has never been more important. They turned this place into a hell. We're in Beijing. We, we see business people got disappear by the state all the time. 
I mean, everything is protected and you're under constant watch. But reporting on Xi? Well, that might be my toughest assignment yet. I've come into a bathroom now to try to upload all these files in case on my way out I get stopped and searched and they try to delete these. Despite 10 years in power, he remains a puzzle. One we know very little about beyond official propaganda. Who is he, really? How has he managed to build a cult of personality? What kind of a leader has this made him? And what does that mean for all of us? China under Xi doesn't like these sorts of questions. Don't touch me! Don't touch me! But I'm going to try and ask them anyway. I'm Sophia Yan, and this is How to Become a Dictator. Coming soon from The Telegraph. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 